Chris is blindfolded and gagged. Her wrists are bound. The man forces her out to the backyard, where he cuts off her clothes and leaves her there. She can hear him inside the house, cussing and ransacking, and all she can do is wait. Joseph James D'Angelo, 72, a cop in the 1970s, was arrested at his home. He'd been fired from the police force in 1979 after he was accused of shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. Uh, there was a person behind me and then putting a knife to my throat, growling in my ear, if you move, if you scream, I will put this knife all the way through and be dead. Welcome back, everyone. This is going to be a multi-series podcast on one of the nation's most prolific serial killers known as a Golden State Killer. We're referring to Joseph D'Angelo, who was born in Northern California in 1945. He went to Sacramento State and got a degree in criminal justice. Over a 12-year span between 1974 and 1986, he was responsible for 13 murders, 51 rapes, and over 120 burglaries. He's been known as the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker. And in 2013, he was dubbed to be the Golden State Killer. In April 24, 2018, D'Angelo was arrested. For 12 years, D'Angelo shook the core of California, terrified families, and went silent. 10 years later, he came back, popped up, and started taunting the police by calling them and telling them he was the East Area Rapist and he's going to get away with this murder. And then he went cold, silent, and disappeared until he was arrested. We're going to start this series with one of his survivors. This is her story. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We want to thank Chris Pedretti for joining the show. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your night to come down here and speak with us about the horrific incident that occurred to you. We gave a brief uh, bio and description of who we're going to be doing these podcast series about, and you're one of the survivors of this predator and serial killer. I'm going to throw the ball in your court. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are, um, your involvement in this case, and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. All right. Well, my name is Chris Pedretti, as you said. Uh, I lived in Carmichael during the time of the attack. I now live in Elk Grove, California, and I was uh, his 10th victim. On It was on December 18th, 1976. The night of the incident, we want you to share with our audience what happened that night. Walk us through that day um, leading up to the attack and then ultimately what led up after the attack. Okay. So back in 1976, I was a ninth grader. I had just left a Christian school and I was very religious at the time. And I wanted to go to the public sector so I could spread the word and spread his love. And so I did that. Um, and then December came and my parents were going to a Christmas party I was home alone. My sister was at work. So she got off work at nine o'clock. So not a big deal. Um, my girlfriend from across the street came over and, you know, we love it because no one's home. We've got the house to <laughs> ourselves. And, but then her mom called and said she had to go home and make cookies. 
And so I was like, well, come back after. And she's like, okay. And um, so she went home and I popped a pizza in the oven and I decided to go play the piano while I was waiting, you know, for the 10 minutes for it to cook. And while I was playing, I heard a noise loud enough for me to notice, loud enough for me to stop playing and listen. And um, I didn't hear anything. And so I thought, hmm, I must just be hearing things or, you know, I didn't have any experience with scary stuff. So to me, it was like no big deal. And so I started to play again. And honestly, probably about 15 seconds, maybe less, there was a person behind me and then putting a knife to my throat, growling in my ear. If you move, if you scream, I will put this knife all the way through and you will be dead. And I'm pretty sure I went into instant shock at that point, which probably helped me get through the night, you know, because it brought up, I just was numb and I felt like kind of like a robot. I did what he told me to do. Mm -hmm. And he told me to get up and we went uh, into the foyer. And that is when he asked me where my parents kept the money Mm -hmm. and um, when they would be home. And I had no idea where they kept their money. And I had no idea when they would get home. So I was like, I don't know. And so he um, pushed me down the hallway into the laundry room where he had uh, shoelaces waiting to tie me. And um, and I think there was a, a gag at that time. I'm not sure. I get mixed up on when that gag went in. From there, though, he took me through the garage and outside to the patio. Hmm. And, uh, that is when he cut off my shirt, took off my pants. Uh, I later found out he threw them in the neighbor's yards. Very strange. I know. Um, that's interesting. mm -hmm. And he left me out there, you know, December 18th, cold outside. And he said he was going to go back in the house and he would be watching me every 10 seconds. And that if I had moved, uh, that he would put the knife through my throat and kill me. And so, uh, I stayed perfectly still and he did, he did check every 10 seconds, but I could hear him rummaging through our house. I heard the timer for the pizza going off, which he ate. Um, yeah. And, um, and he just kept coming back and forth. Eventually he came back and he, uh, got me up and took me to my parents' bedroom. And that was the first place that he raped me was on their bed. Very sick. Um, then he took me back outside and we did it again where I stayed outside. He checked on me as he kept rummaging and stealing things from our home. Um, second time he came back, he brought me into the family room, raped me again, uh, and then back outside. And then what seemed, you know, a good amount of time, he came back again, brought me back into the family room. And this time I noticed heat. I, the, I was laying next to the couch, you know, and I knew the layout of our family room and there shouldn't be heat next to the couch. And, and then I heard the fire hmm. and I thought uh, for a quick moment that he had caught our house on fire our couch on fire and that he was going to leave me to burn. And uh, I just remember seeing Jesus loves me in my head, you know, just try somehow to self-soothe me. Um, the house was not on fire. 
He just turned the fireplace on and moved the couch for a quick getaway if he needed to. All of this, of course, I found out later. Um, So then he just left me in there and it was very, very quiet. Like you couldn't hear anything. And so I moved, you know, I just did a little test and he was right there, right next to me. Like I could feel his breath when he's telling me to shut up or to stop moving. Um, So I did. And then probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes later, I just was like, had to try it again. And he was still there. So he was just perched right next to me. You don't hear him breathe. You don't hear anything. And uh, again, this time he said, you know, do that again. And, you know, the knife is going to go through you and you'll be, uh, I'll kill you and I'll, and I'll be gone in the dark of the night, which is kind of his thing yeah, that he told wrong. people. Yeah. yeah. Um. So now again, I'm waiting. And this time I, I, you know, your brain just says enough. Your body, at this point, I'm not even present. You know, my body's kind of doing what it's doing. And it's just like, I can't do this anymore. He's told me I'm going to be dead a zillion times. And I believed him. I truly believed him. And I thought, I'm going to die anyways. So I might as well get up and, and, um, see if he's still here. And he wasn't that I knew of. So I was able to rub the blindfold off and then I was still tied. So I just had to, it took me a while to be able to, there was nothing I could hold on to because I was tied. And so I was able to hop to the, uh, kind of the hallway and I looked down the hallway and I remember thinking if he's here, I'm dead. Yeah. There is no way I can get back to that spot, right. Where he wouldn't know, but I just, I didn't care. And the primary reason I hopped that way is I wanted to make sure that the door was unlocked so somebody could come help me. Mm-hmm. And it was, because I don't think I could have unlocked that door. So uh, I went back, called my friend. I had to do a back bend, you know, because yeah. my hands are tied. So yeah. I'm having to, I think it was a push button though. Thank goodness. Right. Really. Way back when yeah. you guys don't even know what that is. Do you? Uh, yeah, barely, <laughs> barely. Fax machine or something? Yeah. No, a telephone. Oh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, she's talking about our old, back in the day, an old, old phone. Yeah. Back then, we 911 didn't even exist. You'd have to call the sheriffs. No kidding. No, no. Wow. That, this was that long ago. <laughs> anyway, um, I asked for my friend Lori and told her that I had been raped and to tell her dad to bring a knife. And her words to me were, you're kidding, right? I was like, No. I mean, it's a safe neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, what a weird thing for someone to call. And she just seen me two or three hours before that. Anyways, they came over, they called the police, the sheriffs. And um, then from there began the, the next chapter of that night. I'm trying to like process all this because it's very traumatic hearing that. When, uh, when he first came into your house and was behind you, do you remember feeling the knife on your neck? Oh yeah. I felt like if I coughed, it would go all the way through. Wow. It wasn't just laying there. You know, it was, it was convincingly real that he would use it. Wow. Do, do you remember what, what time of the night was this? 7.30. Okay. So 7.30 at night in December. So it's dark out oh, obviously mm-hmm. at that time. 
I'm sure it, se- it seemed like an eternity uh, that he was in your house. Do you know, do we know now how long he was in the house from the time he got in uh, until the time? I know it probably sounds like you don't know when he left, but I mean, roughly, I you know, got up to call. Yeah, I know roughly because my sister was at work and we had to call her uh, to come home. And here's another story you guys have never heard of probably, but she worked at Montgomery Wards, which was kind of like a Coles. Yeah, I never, or a never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the magazine dating myself here. Um, and she got off work at nine and she was still there okay. and they were closing up. So it was probably like eight forty-five, and he probably actually was at my house at seven. So. Wow. So he was there for a long, I mean, he's in there for a long time. Yeah. He eats your food. He takes your things. I know the pictures on the wall of me and my sister were moved around. He uh, was probably the noise I heard uh, was the sheets ripping. And also he took the shoelaces out of my sister's shoes from her closet to tie me. So he was in your house. Yeah. Uh, had removed the shoelaces, staged them, and mm-hmm. then came to you. Mm-hmm. He was probably in the house when my friend Lori was there. Wow, That is, it's creepy to even yeah. think about that. So, how, I'm sorry, go ahead. How did he, you said he had the shoelaces. How did he tie you up? Like what, what was that? How did he tie you? your arms behind your back and oh yeah yeah behind and then my ankles i thought you're gonna ask me what kind of knot i'm like i don't know (laughs) so he ties you up i wonder and uh, then gags and then yeah so he's so he sticks a gag in your mouth he ties you up so obviously you can't scream yell do anything and you're Mm -hmm. probably too scared to do that anyways right because he's threatening to kill you but i'm curious uh when that happened you were the 10th victim. All of this had been going on relatively in the same region, in the same area. So did you or your family know that this had been occurring or what, what was kind of the vibe and feel like? Because I know after a long time of this going on, I mean, families all over California were absolutely terrified of this yeah. guy. And I know that families, husband and wives were actually creating plans with each other. Right. If this guy got into their house, what they would do. And I know that it actually happened to a, to a husband and wife that, they actually had a plan in place that if he were to get into their home, the wife was going to run or hide and he would, the husband would confront him. And um, I want to say ultimately that was one of the last break-ins he did because their plan worked. Right. And it scared him out of the house. And made him really mad. Yeah. And I think he, after that he started killing. Yeah. I think he kind of fell off the map in, in this area and then moved maybe to Southern California. But the point is, is it terrified people to the point of like, no one knew where this guy was. No one knew who, who he was or where he was. And he could break into anyone's home at any night. And families were terrified. Right. So was that like on your guys' radar or it wasn't really talked about? So um, because I was number 10, I was really early on. And it didn't even go public until number five. Because okay. they didn't know they had a serial yeah. rapist until he does it, you know, serially. <laughs> yeah. And so at the time... Um, when he assaulted you, there were no, there were no murders at this point. No. Oh no. He was still early, early. Um, thank God. Right. Because he, he was, uh, he wasn't using guns. He wasn't doing any of that stuff yet. Um, but my parents, I would say there just wasn't good communication. I know they knew it was in the paper, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea who this was. Like I, I truly didn't have a clue. And how old were you again? 15. I you just turned 15. 15. So, wow. Your parents probably, obviously your parents knew, but I mean, I don't know. I guess is that a conversation you have with your 15 year old 
daughter. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe well, maybe in today's age, it probably is, right? But back then, I, I don't know. Yeah, if they're going to be gone. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, then versus now, who knows? But I knew nothing about it. I didn't lock doors. I didn't. I was free. I was a 15 year old kid. Like yeah, yeah, I'm worried 15. about what I'm going to get for Christmas. Yeah. That's not, not, yeah. that's not something you're going to be, unless it's something that like everybody's talking about, you're probably not going to be concerned yeah. about that. What, what, so after the fact, when your parents find out about it, um, what was their, what was their reaction? Number one, a finding out what happened to you, but then B finding out that this individual, this serial rapist, you, you were a victim of that. Uh, well, you don't know you're a, it's a serial rapist yet. I don't, yeah. but they did. They did. Like yeah. uh, a detective was called right away just because the MO was so, he was very consistent with what he did. Um, but my sister, when she got home, they, the cops told her that she had to call my parents. I feel bad for her to this day because she was truly a victim too. So she's 17 years old. She drives up, she sees police tape. She sees cop cars. And she has just had a phone call saying, come home, but we can't tell you why. Hmm. So when she pulls up, she thinks we're dead. Right? Like, what else would you think? Yeah, yeah, totally. And 17, that's, you know, that's a young kid. And then, you know, insult to injury. Now the police are telling her she needs to call my parents and tell them to come home, but not tell them why. And they made her do that? Yeah, what a task for her. That was a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And I didn't even know this until she and I started talking about it uh, five years ago. We never spoke. I mean, my dad said, don't speak about it. We don't speak about it. Um, But she told me that when she called, finally found them, that my mom could hear her voice being shaky. And she was like, is everything okay? And then Robin, (laughs) this makes me cry every time. Robin was like, no. And she broke down crying. And then my mom was saying, what's wrong? And she said, I can't tell you. So. Wow. God, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And that was at the direction of law enforcement. Yes. So once law enforcement shows up, walk us through that interaction and how that, that happens. So I was, uh, you know, waiting. I didn't know what I, my mind was, I was very much in a different place. And so I can't really tell you what I was thinking, but I know when they came, um, Somehow, and I don't know why, has nothing to do with the officers, but my living room had all my neighbors in it. And I don't know why they were there. I don't know how they got there. And then right when they got there, that is when uh, they instructed my sister, uh, my neighbor to call my sister to tell her to come home, and then my sister to tell my parents. And then nothing really happened, because I think we were waiting for a detective Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, But... When my parents came home, I don't know if the detective was there yet, but I was in the family room by myself and in the living room is where he came, the front door, living room. Then there's a door to the kitchen, like a slider pocket door Mm -hmm. and then the kitchen. And I heard him yell, you know, what what color he is, what color was he? Meaning uh, all of his prejudices were coming out. And he didn't ask about how I was. I just heard him furiously wanting to know who this person was. Hmm. Typical of my dad. Marine, very, very structured, not very loving. Um, just kind of the, the dad that 
before he comes home from work, everybody scrambles. Yeah. yeah just, just a hardcore kind of guy. Yeah. And, uh, so at that point, I don't want to see my dad. Like, you know, that's another trigger. That's a danger. Like my dad's mad. And, uh, so I, I told the officers, um, that I will not answer any of your questions if you let either one of my parents in this room. Good which, for you. Which is, it's sad because, you know, your parents are supposed to be your safe haven, right? Yeah. And this would be one of the things, you know, later learning that the question should have been, I understand, is there someone else that you would like in here with you? Yeah, totally. That would have been the right question. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm not thinking like that at the time. I just mm -hmm. don't want to be around my angry father. Uh, so the, the questions were very, um, the detective got there, sat down and the questions were very kind of dragnet, you know, just the facts, only the facts. A couple of times I remember saying something, they said, no, that couldn't have happened. So they're telling me I was wrong. But I think that was very indicative of those days. <clears throat> um, so remember I'm 15. I am not sexually active. I don't know what's going on. The house is crawling with officers. And this would be another thing that would have been really nice, right? Is, okay, so there's lots of officers and I want you to know what's happening. Some of them are, you know, looking for fingerprints. And there's a couple that are in your neighborhood asking your neighbors if they saw anything so they could help us catch him. You know, just none of that happened during that time. So even though it happened to me, everything was happening around me and I didn't know what was going on. Do you think it would have been best for them to take you out of the scenario, completely out of your house, considering that's where the crime occurred? Would you have felt more comfortable doing that? That is a great question because uh, I don't think out of the house, but what they could have done is asked me where I wanted to be interviewed because yeah. the room they interviewed me is the same room I got raped in twice. <sighs> but they don't know that right? An officer yeah. can't know that till I tell them. So that's, you know, another one of those things that I like, just be aware, be mindful. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, so at this point, uh, oh, I wasn't active sexually. This, this is one of the things that still, uh, it's almost comical, but it wasn't at the time. He wanted to know what size his penis was because right now it's already going around that he's got this little penis. I don't know any of this. And I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't know. I have nothing to compare this to. And so he wanted me to compare it to a hot dog. Really? Yeah. Is it like one of those long skinny ones? Is it one of those fat uh, ones? So. The detective? Mm -hmm. And it's uh, a male detective interviewing. It's you. a male detective, yeah. yes. Which is not comfortable. I yeah, imagine. not for you. I mean, you're a young girl. You just got raped multiple times. You're terrified. And now not only are you in the room that occurred, but there's a male detective doing the interview. So just me and him. Well, I've, I've interviewed sex assault victims that are obviously women and it's very uncomfortable for me. Yeah. As, you know, as a, a male yeah. officer and you, you request female officers and it's very uncomfortable. You know, <clears throat> I think the only reason I would request a female officer is if I didn't believe the male officer was trauma informed, which is, you know, the words we use now, but I would have felt like the male officer wouldn't believe me or he wouldn't uh, listen as much because in the seventies, that was a big, what were you wearing? What did you do to cause this? 
we've come a long ways now yeah. for the most part, but that's that attitude is still there. Yeah. What, what were some of the questions that he asked you? I can't remember. Um, I think it was more like what happened, then what happened, then what happened, then uh, what happened, that couldn't have happened, then what happened. You know, it was very, it was a, it was an, it, it was an interview. Yeah. Very robotic. Yeah. Do you, do you think they believed you? Somewhat, not some, or? Uh, I, I don't, I think they, well, they obviously believed me because they saw Evidence. the ropes and they, they, I mean, they saw everything, but I think, I, so like at one point, nothing I won't forget, I told him I thought he was standing behind me. And he's like, absolutely not. That could not have happened. And maybe he's right because, you know, I can't see. Yeah. I can only hear. I can't speak. I don't have a good, but don't say that. But don't, yeah, <laughs> you, you wouldn't say that to the, like, even if, because of being in police, like, yes, there are sometimes things that, that people are going to say, the witnesses, victims, and you're in the back of your head, you're like, probably didn't happen. Or not yeah. like that. Or, or right. But that's not something you're going to vocalize to the victim that that yeah. just occurred to, right? Like that, your job is to like document what you're saying and then build off of that. Yeah. But, um, so in terms of evidence, so after he, do you know roughly about how long the interview lasted with the detective? And was it only just done at the house or were you? Just at the, uh, well, the next day we went back, okay. but at that part, it was just at the house. Um, and so, you know, kind of going back, I feel like when a sexual assault victim is assaulted, um, we, we get victimized three or four different times. Yeah, I bet. So the first time is when you are assaulted. Mm -hmm. Second time is when the police come. If they're not trauma informed, it's absolutely terrifying mm -hmm. because, because and, and I understand, so I want to make this change now, at least I hope it's, it, I hope it's changed. Um, when, like now when they come to your home, they're trauma informed. They, they know pretty much what they're doing, unless it's a patrol officer who hasn't had any training. Yeah. And so they can easily re-victimize a person. Some, some women are really angry and they're dropping those F-bombs left and right you know, and you might have this church going patrol officer, like they got to understand, like speak the language, understand that this person is, is reacting. Yeah. Don't judge. Yeah. You know, some might be very, very, uh, emotional and crying me. Like I said, I was kind of like a robot. I didn't cry. I just answered their questions, hmm. but I was falling apart on the inside, but yeah. my body, I, I wasn't ready to handle that yet. So the first time is the assault. The second time, is the um, interview. The third time is now you get to go to the hospital. And what I was told was you were going to go to the doctor. Okay. So again, I'm 15 going to the doctor means they're going to take my temperature. They're going to ask how I feel. They're going to make sure nothing's broken. I mean, obviously I've never had a pap smear. I've never had any thing like that. And, and I'm sure there's, you know, many young girls, teenagers that, this is so violating. And now you're re-victimized the third time because everywhere he touched, they touch. Everywhere he was in, they go in. And um, it's very humiliating. And it's, it, it's 
I don't even know. Like that is that uh, part right there is a part that I have a hard time with. I still struggle with that memory. We had to wait two hours in the waiting room with everybody else before they came and got us. Um, again, I told my mom, don't come in. I was just embarrassed. I, I just, I, I knew that I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew it wasn't going to be good yeah. and it wasn't good. Yeah. The, the hard part too is, you know, you've done plenty. I'm sure Mark uh, doing these sexual assault cases is, um, it, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't have the answer of, of any type of workaround to get the evidence, right. To collect the evidence, to be able to find who these people are through, especially in today's day and age with DNA, yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah. we have to, we have to collect that. So I couldn't imagine being in your shoes, being victimized. And then like you just said, you're at the doctor's office, they're probing around, they're touching things where this, the bad guy just touched you. And like, truthfully as cops, I don't think we think of those things. I think, I think from the cop's point of view is they're thinking evidence. Right. Right. And unfortunately, if I'm being honest, I don't think they're all the time thinking what you're feeling uh, because that's all they're thinking about is, is collecting the evidence. And so, and it's not an excuse. It's just, and especially back in the seventies, I mean, what that it, type of training didn't exist. Yeah. But what it, what it is, is a lost opportunity. It really is. Yeah. Uh, you know, the two things that the police officer and the victim have in common is catching the bad guy. Right. And the police officer is going to get, I don't know, I'm making this up. You guys are police officers, but you know, probably 70% of their information that they're gathering is from the victim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if the victim feels like she's in a hostile place or this person doesn't care or she's being judged or not believed, she's going to, she'll shut down and you're not going to get any information. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so I encourage officers to look at it as an opportunity be a partner with that victim. Let that victim know you want to catch this guy as bad as she wants him to be caught mm -hmm. because she was brave enough to call and report it. Yeah, She started this whole thing. So I just feel like it's really important that the officer builds that rapport, the patrol officer from the very beginning, the handoff, if you need to, you know, can I get you some water? You're shivering. You look cold. Do you need a blanket? Or you know what? Do you need a break? You want to take five? Mm -hmm. I, I want to say I highly doubt that happens, but, I agree it, with you. Yeah. but it should happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm really glad you're saying all this because we have a ton of young patrol cops that listen to this show and there's, there's a lot of valuable information mm -hmm. of, of what you just said. And, and I hope people that are listening, take note of that. And the next call that they go to involving a sexual assault crime, which occur, I mean, cops are handling those calls daily. Yeah. Um, they take a little piece of what you just said and I hope they, they start to apply it, which is the whole reason why we're doing this and why we do this podcast is to educate cops to, to be better. So, so after the, you're at the doctor's office, um, they do the sexual assault exam. Do you know how long you're there for? Oh, well, you mean in the exam room? In the exam room, yeah. The, the total time you're from, from the time you arrive at the hospital, uh, they do the exam until you actually get to go back home. Okay, well, when we go. got to the hospital, we had to wait two hours to even be seen. Really? Yes. Okay. And so I would say the exam was probably 45 minutes, you know, like coming in, getting changed, you know, all the way to the end and back out. And then they asked me if I wanted to see a counselor, but it would be another two hours. What what time of night is it now? At this know? point, it's probably midnight. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be around midnight-ish. Yeah. yeah. Which, that's late. Yeah. So I talked about three victimizations. So the fourth one and other victims, it might not be the same as mine, but it will be something. It's the aftermath. 
for yeah. me, when we drove home, my father told me and my sister, we could never talk about it. She had to call in sick the next day. Couldn't tell him why. And I actually was sent to a church camp two days later What? Wow. and acted like nothing happened. And, and then, you know, it's just, it was a very rape culture time. We're still in it, but not as bad. So you didn't talk about things like that. Yeah. That's just not what you talked about. That was the, so that's the last time you talked about it was in the car? Up until he got three weeks before he got caught. Oh shit. I'm, I mean, I told people, I like, I would tell my husband, hey, I was raped by the East Area Rapist. You should probably know that. But it stopped <laughs> there. Like I did, it didn't even occur to me to tell details. And he yep. was like, okay. <laughs> but even up through high school, out of high school, like that just, like you like you never debriefed it with your, like there's this. Mm-mm. We I, weren't I'm, allowed. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around why. It, so is your dad, is, is he mad at you? Is is he, I, I mean, guilty? look, I'm, I'm a dad. I have a daughter and, and I'm a father. And and if I'm putting myself in your dad's shoes, finding out my 15 year old daughter got raped, I'm I'm going to be furious. I'm not going to be furious at my daughter. I'm going right. to want to, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to want to kill the guy that, that did that to my kid. So I guess I'm trying to figure out, is he mad? It sounds to me like he's upset with you. What, what does he have? I don't know. With, we you never know? talked about it. I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious. We never talked about it. I'm wondering if they were, maybe they feel guilty because they knew and they didn't say anything was, and then they left and then it was like, oh my God, it happened. They didn't tell their brothers and sisters. Like no one knew. It was just, Gosh, just that's no so, one knew. That's so interesting. I mean, we we wouldn't know unless we're. Are your parents still around? No. And I tried to bring it up to my mom before she passed away. I was like, "Do you want to talk about that?" And she's like, "No." So I tried. Hmm. I'm How about sorry. your dad? Oh, I, I would never, never even ask him. Tried to- no, we were scared of my dad. Hmm. You know, even as adults, you know, we just didn't know him very well because. He wasn't daddy. He was our father. He, yeah. he, uh, provided. Yeah, he was a provider. That was his job. So that was the last time you talked about it. And then up until about three weeks before, for the most part, what happened in the middle? So that was a very lonely journey that every rape victim goes through. It might be different depending on the support, but you feel shame because no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. So it must be your fault. You blame yourself. Why didn't I have that door locked? He wouldn't have come in if the door wasn't, you know, if the door had been locked. Um, And then it's the secret that when people, when you tell someone, the look on their face says everything. And usually the look on the face is is like, oh my God, you know, like, and then, uh, and this still happens. They're like, they don't know what to say. And I get it because the fir- they're hearing about it for the very first time. So they're having an initial reaction. And then they're like, oh God, I screwed that up. And then they end up ghosting you, hmm. right? Because they don't want to screw it up again. Or they might do, well, what were you wearing? Couldn't, did, why didn't you fight back? I mean, these are things that people say. And to a victim, it's saying blame, blame. You should have done something different. And so then you turn inward and you isolate yourself and nobody knows your secret. And so that's what I did. Um, I went to three high schools the very first, that year after, three of them. Uh, so then I uh, was introduced to drugs and that helped. And um, no longer did I need that God. Like 
because that's the whole reason I went to the schools. I wanted to spread the word of God. So, uh, yeah, that, that stopped that. So, so many things in my life. I had friends. I had church. I had a life. And just, you know, in a snap of a finger, that life was gone. And what I was left with is something I didn't know how to be. I wasn't a kid anymore, but I certainly wasn't an adult. So I'm just trying to find my way. And everything that was numbing really helped for a while. And then I stopped, but that is how I got through my high school years. And if you don't mind me asking, what what kind of drugs did you get into? Oh, back then, let's see, mushrooms, um, acid, pot. It's not like drugs today, though. I'm pretty sure when we smoked pot, we were smoking half parsley and half something else. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not like but that. That played a huge today. role, right, of like you getting into drugs or active into drugs. Did you, did you drink back then? Not then. Mm-mm. Okay. Did you do drugs? Uh, did you seek those out or do they come to you or are you just- a- They came to me. I, You know, the, the outsiders, the people that- aren't part of the group, they find you like the stoners in the park. Oh, she's wandering around. Let's invite her over. You know, like they came to me and. But you contribute that and wanting to use those drugs to numb you from the pain that you were feeling from everything that had occurred. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And you said it, it worked for a while. It did, but you can't live that way. Right. You know, now I'm graduating. I got to get a job. I've got to, you know, and so. I pulled it together, but all the relationships I had failed. I had two failed marriages and I was, uh, I think in the best way I can put it is I was surviving. I wasn't living. Mm -hmm. I was like playing a role. I did really good in my career. I kept getting great jobs, great money. I didn't even know what I I was faking it till I made it. And I wouldn't stay there even uh, I don't think I stayed at a job longer than three years the then, entire time. Yeah, And that's, that's interesting because, you know, they made a lot of documentaries about, you know, him being the East area rapist and, and all these other names that, that he ended up gaining over the years of mm-hmm. him doing these crimes. Like, did you ever see anything on TV about it? Did you ever read about it? And that sparked anything like later on in your life or did, was everything just like kind of dormant? Everything was turned off. Wow. I didn't know there were books out there. I didn't know there were documents. I didn't know any of it. I don't know how or why I didn't know. I had severe anxiety attacks. I had PTSD, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know until I finally got help. But yeah, no, I had severe anxiety attacks. Like I said, I couldn't keep a job, didn't have friends. It was just day by day, living to the next day. Gosh, do you think that could have been avoided had you sought sought help? as soon as this happened? Absolutely. Would you, would, 100%. You, would you say that'd be a big takeaway from this is, well, A, I guess for anybody listening, if they've been involved in something like that, but um, for the cops out there, like to, to try to really uh, advocate for victims to, to go seek some type of therapeutic help. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I can only speak for my, how old I was, but I know a lot of the other uh, victims of his and the number one thing that we all talk about is we just couldn't trust anyone. Like there was no one listening to us. A lot of the marriages broke up and um, a lot of the husbands just didn't want to deal with it. So just it's over. Just pretend it didn't happen, move on. And I think that uh, when we got therapy, it was through the victim's compensation fund. Um, 
I told the other people that I knew and we all ended up going to one therapist. She's a beautiful woman. And we all felt better. Like there's just no judging. There's listening. They've got tools now, EMDR, brain spot. They've got, it's not just tell me what happened every step of the way. It's let's talk about how you're feeling. Let's talk about that nightmare you had. And then there are tools that they can use that actually will desensitize those triggers in your head. And we're still going to have triggers. Well, like there's no way you're going to get around that. But uh, the major ones, we can desensitize ourselves from it. So every time you hear a noise behind you, you're not jumping, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. We talk a lot about EMDR and Mark, Mark and I have actually both done EMDR. It's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. So we advocate for that as well. So you live your life. So you go through your life. It sounds to me like this whole thing kind of stays dormant for you. Mm-hmm. You had a couple failed marriages. Things just aren't working your way. Sounds like you got involved in drugs. You said at one point you were an alcoholic. No, I just drank. Okay, was that Not all a part of? What was that all a part of? Still, like the numbing process of. Yeah, that's your way of dealing with everything that happened when you were fifteen. Yeah, and interesting. Um, when I wasn't doing those, I was playing tennis. I mean, I was always busy, uh-huh. and I still am. Like I would garden. You know, I don't just have a little garden. I have a big garden, like always stay busy. So if I wasn't numb, I was busy, but having that downtime where your brain can kind of drift, that's not, that's when those things would creep in. Okay. Cause that's when you start thinking about things and that's when you start to feel the need to need to numb it. Oh yeah. I would get up in the middle of the night and exercise. Hmm. I mean, I used anything I could, you know, I lived at home, so I couldn't do drugs all the time. I could do those at school. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. You probably wouldn't be sitting here today if, if you continue to live your life yeah, like that. Yeah. But, but yeah. It's fascinating. So life goes on for you and uh, sounds like you had a successful career. Very. Um, you're obviously successful now and, and happily married. Um, but let's, let's, I want to talk about leading up to him getting apprehended or getting caught. Where were you? when you found out that Joseph D'Angelo was arrested and he was a Golden State Killer? I was on a business trip in Los Angeles in a hotel room. And it was probably six in the morning. I think my daughter texted me. I think they got him. But I was like, I'll look at this later. Like, that was not anything I was thinking of, right? Like, caught who? And then probably 10 minutes later, Carol Daly uh, called me. And she was an investigator, one of the original ones. And all she had time to tell me was that the East Area Rapist has been caught. But she had so many people to call. This wasn't a, how are you feeling, dear, conversation. Mm-hmm. This was, this is, and then my husband called me and he said, as driving to work, you know, did you hear he's been caught? And at this point, I honestly went into shock all over again, just like it was that night. And I remember him asking me, I think if I was okay and I'm on the phone, just shaking my head and he's like, Chris, I can't see you. He's in Sacramento. You know, we're on the phone. And, um, he asked, you know, if he should come and get me because I, I was shaking. I, it was, it was bad. Um, after we hung up, I couldn't decide what to do. Like seriously, do I just go back to bed? Maybe this isn't even happening or, Maybe I should go take a shower and get ready for training and then just go back to bed, get a little bit of sleep. And now I'll just go to training and I'll just go home tonight. Like nothing was making sense. And by the time I made it down to the breakfast, you know, I had to tell my boss and I was, 
I think a complete mess because she called the airlines for me, made me a reservation. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I, I was not capable of doing that. I got the last seat on the plane. I cried the entire way home. So the two businessmen I was in the middle of, they were just like awkward. Yeah. <laughs> like, What's happening? Um, but yeah, it was, it was very, very jarring. And luckily for me, it was that three weeks before then I met Carol Daly and uh, through reading a story about someone in the paper who was a victim of the East area rapist. And when I saw that, I was, I was shocked. I was like, you are not supposed to talk about this. Like it really affected me. Like you're putting your face out there. Like these are things I never thought would happen or should happen, you know? And, um, but anyway, so I called the editor and then he put me in touch with the lady in the article. And then she said, Hey, have you met, um, Carol Daly? I said, no. And so she arranged us to meet just happenstance. She came to my house. I remember Carol saying, I don't know why I'm here. I just feel like I need to be here for you. Wow. Yeah, it was really sweet. And my sister left work early. My husband came home from work early and we all sat around the table and pulled out that report. And when Carol left, I read it, every word of it to my sister and my husband and to me, because I hadn't seen it in so long. And, um, it was, it was good. I didn't want them to read it because I just, I think it would be really hard for them to say, wait, what, what, you know, I just yeah. said, just let me read it. And, uh, and then the next week I told my kids and then, like I said, two weeks later he was caught. So I did, I did have kind of a, a buffer that probably made it easier, even though it wasn't easy. I have no idea because to me, this guy just got raised from the dead. I convinced myself he was dead or that it hadn't even happened. And I was just wow. crazy. Cause it's, it's hard. Sometimes I still think, did this really happen? Cause it was, it's an out of body experience. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but, uh, but then from there, everything got better. Um, therapy happened and meeting other victims happened. Um, we formed our own support group, you know, like I don't mean in a group, but we supported each other. We actually even, uh, put a Facebook group on just for the victims and their families. And because this was, uh, multi-jurisdictional, mm -hmm. the communication was not good. Yeah. The communication I got wasn't the communication you would get. And so he said, forget that. And we, every single thing that we got that said confidential on the bottom, you may not share this. We shared it and we didn't care because we're all victims and we all need to get the same information. So we just posted yeah. everything. Good for you. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. It was that healing. We bonded together and that helped a whole lot. Gosh, it's wild. I mean, there's such a, you know, some people will, will go as far as to say that like, this is the, one of the biggest prolific serial killers <clears throat> in, in history in the United States, just with all of the rapes he did with all the homicides that he had done. And then as all the burglaries that he did, if you tie all those together, uh, there is nobody out there that's, that's committed as many uh, violent crimes as, as he has. Yeah, when so. did you find out that there was 50 other victims involved in this? Like, when did you, when did you actually know how big it was? 
I don't, I would say probably when he was caught. Wow. So you really didn't know the scope of- I really checked out. I didn't know about Southern California. Wow. I, yeah. I didn't watch those kind of shows. I didn't, you know, I don't even know how much true crime was, re- I mean, true crime is big now, but I don't know. What happened in 2016 with the FBI? Oh, so it had been dormant for a long, long time in my mm-hmm. head. And then one day I came home and in the mail was a letter from the FBI saying they were going to commemorate this anniversary of 40 years and it was going to be on a billboard and there were two or three of them and they were going to be electronic billboards and they were going to show his composites, et cetera, et cetera. And I freaked out. I was like, what the hell? This was 40 years ago. Can you just let it go? You know, like for me, I felt like it had just ripped the bandaid off. I was going along my life, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) semi-normal. I was already married uh, to Steve at that point. Things were going really well. And that was just such a shock. And so I, um, actually, I think I emailed them and I was just like, you better have suspects. You, you better be having your eyes on somebody. Please tell me you're not just doing this to do it because this isn't an anniversary you should be celebrating. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I was really upset. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's tough, you know, coming from the law enforcement world and you know, these, these things stay open until the person's caught. Right. So in a case like this, I mean, it's going to, the, the case would always stay open. Right. So as an investigator, how would you how would you go about trying to, you know, open that box again and hopefully put something out there and maybe somebody would recognize this person and go, that looks like, you know, maybe my uncle or, or a Bob that I know down the street, yeah. you know, cause that those things do happen and that it does open cases back up. So like I said, I don't, I don't have the answer to that because in, in well, that's Phoenix, exactly what they said is that they were trying to open this back up to try to get some type of lead that somebody, and they were nice. They were like, I ended up apologizing just so you know, like yeah. it triggered me. <laughs> no, that's and, okay. Like you have every right to be angry, but like, they you, called me and they talked to me and they said, okay, we're not doing this to rip your bandaid off. We're not doing this to upset you. Um, and I'm sorry that you are upset, but you know, so much time has gone by. Maybe his child now is older, remember something, or maybe, um, you know, a a nephew or saw these weird things at his house or, and so then I understood, but, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, putting, (laughs) like putting yourself in the victim's shoes, I could totally, I would be here. You are trying to live your life. You know, it's been 40 years and it's like, Oh, now I got to see this guy's freaking face on a billboard on like, a billboard <laughs> yeah like that is totally traumatizing so and putting myself in your shoes i would be very devastated as well but it's it's tough i don't even know the, what the balance of that would be yeah i don't i don't either i, I mean, don't think there is an answer to well be i think just the fact that they explained it to me yeah. yeah and the letter i don't feel like the letter explained that the letter really explained this is the 40th year i don't remember what it all said but it wasn't we understand this might be a hard time for yeah. you. There, there was no empathy. There was no, um, let me assure you Less we're doing this because we want to catch him. We want you to have peace, you know, whatever they could, well, they could do a lot better at that. Yeah. And again, circling all the way back, they're not thinking that, right. They're thinking right. they just want to catch the bad guy. But then also, you know, I've, I'm sitting here thinking about it. The, the FBI agents now currently work in that case. 
were how old when, when that even occurred. Right? right. So, I mean, in their eyes, they're like, this is like a fresh case of them that they have no, nothing really about, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't even, if they were alive, they were very young. Right. You know, so yeah, that's, a, that's kind of the wild thing about this whole story is that it started back in the seventies and then it ended in 2018. So you have how many different generations of cops working these cases? Right. I mean, over it's, and it's fascinating. Over. That's the whole fascinating thing about it. But so, yeah, so he gets apprehended and he's in his seventies. And I, I remember, uh, you know, he's in jail and, you know, you saw news footage of him. He's coming, showing up to court in a wheelchair and he's playing the whole I'm decrepit game and, yep. you know, whatever. But so. actually, I think he had just retired and that's a really good part of the story because he had just retired and now he gets to go to prison. Yeah. <laughs> so happy yeah. retirement. Yeah, <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk with Anne Marie about it to find out how they actually traced all that and then actually made the rest yeah. for another episode. She's got, it is fascinating. Yeah. She's got some good stuff to share, which is now being used. I mean, they're, they're now starting to use that genealogy stuff for, with DNA on a lot of these cold case homicides. And a lot of people are solving cold case homicides right. because of it. So I want to say she was the first ever to, to use it um, here in the state of California to, to actually solve a cold case homicide. Um, it just so happened to be, a huge, huge case. Well, she grew up here in Carmichael Mm -hmm. and she remembers what it was like being a child, being scared to death. And, um, and just, I want to tell you a little bit about her, like when, okay, so he got caught and, you know, I, I get back home and we're sitting outside and I was sort of coming down a little bit. And I told my husband like, man, you know, for all these years, I just wanted it to go away didn't want it to happen. And thank God that Anne-Marie didn't share that thought. Thank God all those officers didn't share that thought. She created a task force and she caught him. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest gift um, that I could ever have asked for or that I could have ever not asked for. Right. So the next day uh, my husband knew somebody in her office and she agreed to come to see me. So we drove down there. I brought her 42 roses, oh, one wow. rose for every year since I had been raped. Yeah. And, um, and we went into her office and I was just like, so amazed, first of all, that she's actually going to see me. I mean, she's got some shit to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? There's an arraignment the next day. There's stuff going on. But she took this t- the time aside. And when we got there, I honestly sat there and I cried. And she just looked at me like you guys are looking at me, not judgy, just like no pressure, no judgment. And I just couldn't get it together. I, I'm sure I said, thank you. And I gave her the roses and then we got up and left. And, but I'll never forget that because she took time out of her day for me. Like, remember, I mean, I wasn't feeling very important before that, right? Like, you don't tell anyone this and that. And here our district attorney is thinking I'm important enough. To watch me cry. <laughs> well, yours you are. You're telling your story a lot now, right? Like, oh yeah. What do you have going on? Yeah. So now, um, I actually am doing a few things. I have a, a support group. It's called Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story, and it's on Facebook. And right now, I think there's 890 people on there. And when I first started, I was just hoping one person, like somebody, I could help because just the thought of someone sitting there alone by themselves, like what I did 
was like, I, I couldn't let that be. I needed to pay it forward. And so it, in, it's been three years. And so it's not growing super fast, but it's growing just the right speed because the community is very supportive of each other. You don't have to be a victim to be in the group because if all we have are victims, we're still keeping it a secret. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So supporters need to be there. Other people need to be there that reassure and support. And it has literally, I think, been the biggest healing part um, along with the therapy, those two together. And then I started doing um, in-person groups in at my home. And so we meet once a month and we have different speakers, uh, law enforcement, therapists, um, uh, boy, I can't even think of who else we've had, but we've had a lot of people there. Uh, someone from the Family Justice Center, you know, just different services that we have in Sacramento that people aren't aware of. You guys might be aware of them or maybe you're not, but somehow it's a secret. And I had no idea that all of these services were there. So uh, we're pretty close knit and anybody can come. Um, so just if you want to look, if you want to look at the site, you can either uh, look up me, Chris Pedretti, on Facebook, and then I'll connect you, or just look up uh, Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story, and you can Google that. Okay, well, and we'll put all of the links in the description and everything so people can find it easily. Yeah. If, so, so for those that are listening or watching on YouTube, not in the Sacramento area, what can our listeners do to help grow this community that you're trying to grow on Facebook? Can they join join? Is there, yeah, join the group. Is there something that people can donate money to? I mean, what would you want to see from our listeners? I would like to see, uh, people joining the group. If you know someone that's hurting, um, we have people all over the world. We have Australia, United Kingdom, Canada, um, perfect United States. Like rape is not a United States thing, right? Right. It's an all over the world thing. And there is just nowhere for people to get help. So, what you could do for me is to help yourself and um, allow us to support you. Oh, I like that. That would be huge. So joining your Facebook group, showing support, I think that would go a very long way. And like she said, if you guys know anybody that's struggling or somebody that could use this, I know in, in, at least in police departments, there are sexual assault detectives. I mean, there's advocates. So I think getting more people on board in the law enforcement world would probably I think be very beneficial. Yeah. And I got, I got really lucky uh, because I was asked to share my story with the de- new detectives coming on board. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for two years and I have met some incredible officers. I have met people that come up to me and this, I think is probably the, one of the, the most meaningful comments is I never thought about what it was like after we left. Like nope. yeah, they're never. just on to the next job. And, yeah. and the people that I have shared with, they are thanking me. Thank you. Because this is a big deal. This isn't just like um, a burglary. They, yeah. This is, this journey is just now beginning. Yeah. And well, so. Well, I know when people hear your story that all officers, I hope will pause a little longer before they get to that victim's door yeah. and really process and think about what the next yeah. steps are and and go in with it with the mindset of when you leave, there's still a huge ripple effect. Oh, and that, absolutely. That you have and play a major role in that. I would say like one of the biggest steps that I haven't said, you know, is um, 
this is where the first divide comes. Officers are coming to a crime scene. The victim just had her home safety taken away from her. Mm. Not the same thing. Yeah. And they, you know, if they can be mindful that they're walking into somebody's home that an hour ago they felt safe. Like if you don't feel safe in your home, where can you feel safe? Yeah. So yeah, it's true. That's a big deal. But, but yeah, so I'm really happy with that. And then, you know, doing the conferences I've met, I've just met so many incredible people and I have been so afraid of law enforcement Mm -hmm. because to me, all those years, you know, what I think of is that night I got raped. Yeah. And now I've met so many people and learning more about like SART teams and, um, the, the different teams that we have to take care of the whole, the whole person from the crime, you know, from the officer, forensic nurses to advocates, you know, and they are becoming trauma informed and we, we are getting somewhere and I'm really happy for for that. I I definitely agree. Law enforcement is advancing in mental health and sexual assault, you know, advocating for victims and stuff, you know, it's come a long way. Um, So now full circle over 40 years later in your life, this is it. Like he's been captured and now you're doing all these things. Do you feel like it's a closed book for you? Do you feel like it's just a new chapter in your life? Like, where are you at with that? I'm in a good place, but I want to say something real quick. Um, We were really fortunate. Part of that plea bargain is he had to admit um, or, or plead guilty to every single one. So the day of that plea hearing was a very hard day because they went through the details of 50 rape victims and 13 murders. And it wasn't just an over, you know, a summary, it was details. And, uh, when they would, when they read ours, um, my family would stand up when they read somebody else's, their family would stand up. And, and it sounds like, why would you do that? Well, it's because we didn't want to be anonymous anymore. We didn't want to be in the shadows anymore. And we were standing up to show that we're not ashamed and that most of us had already you know, understood that. So that was a really powerful day and a really, uh, emotional day, but where I am now, I will say, uh, I am living where before I told you I was surviving. I now live my life with purpose. That's awesome. It is purposeful. And so, no, it's not closed. Like what an opportunity I have to come speak with you guys. Like there's always a a place where I can be of support. And that is 100% my focus. It's, I, I want all the laws to change. I want all that po- political stuff, but my focus is going to stay, you know, with people like me that need support. Well, you, yeah. Thank you for coming in here and being so open and sharing your story. Cause not only are you helping other people, you're also making an impact with law enforcement and telling them like there's a bigger picture and, and to be a little different when you, when you talk with victims, yeah. you are happily married and you do have your husband here with us. And we made him an our honorary producer because he's, yeah. he's, he's in the background. Like he's here. You can't, no one can see him, but he's in the background, like directing and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's pretty neat to see your guys' team. We're a team. Yeah. yeah he's definitely. my wig man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh yeah. One yeah. more thing. See, yeah. He's telling me right yeah. now, yeah. like in my ear, if I had an yeah. earbud, yeah. he'd be in there. Yeah. We do. Um, we're official. Go yeah, ahead, yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Cause so many good things are happening. So right now, uh, with my group, um, and you asked about money and whatnot, but we are actually, uh, um, teaming up with the Seven Eleven. Do you know who they are? They're the retired sheriffs, uh, association. So these are sheriffs that, you know, have retired, but they're not done caring. They still want to, to be a part of the community. 
And so, uh, do either of you know what a soft room is? Yes. Okay. Yep. So one of our stations out here has a closet sized soft room. There is no, uh, there is a, a chair, two chairs and a table. There is nothing on the walls. It's very stark. It, it would not, it's a good interrogation room. Not much of a soft room or what it's designed to be. Exactly. And a soft room for anyone that doesn't know is, you know, a, a place that is victim friendly. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a family room and you can be comfortable. Maybe there's snacks and water and, you know, and anyway, so we're teaming up with them to raise $15,000 to um, provide the money for a soft room and to redo the technology in this department. And um, they're going to, they're doing the, the 7-Eleven's doing the infrastructure. So the donate, um, button and you know all of that stuff and then my group and their group um will be hitting the streets and seeing if we can help victims by when they do go in to an office that they are treated as they should be and also double that or on the on the other side as many officers like where you guys go is you don't have a place to relax either that's very comfortable so it could kind of you know when it's not being used officers could use to relax in a place that looks homey and not so sterile. I like that. Yeah. How, how do they, how do we donate to that? Um, I will have to let you know because the button they're working on the infrastructure infrastructure now. So when you push it, you could donate online. Okay. So we'll add that. We'll it, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll it to. should be like in the next week or so. Okay. okay. I think we can help with that. Hopefully that'd I, be great. That'd be awesome if we could just yeah max that out immediately. Yes. And I have one, one last question. What was it like for you to lay lay eyes on him for the first time? Was it in the courtroom or was it on the news? Uh, well, it was on the, pre- at the press conference where he had a picture, mm-hmm. but then the next day at the arraignment, uh, Steve and I were right at the front. So when he came in on that wheelchair, if he kept going straight, he would have ran right into us. And, um, I didn't really have a reaction and, and I'm glad I didn't because he was a stranger. You know, my biggest concern when I first saw him was, is it someone I know? Is it one of my dad's friends? Is it one of my teachers? Wow. Someone I babysat for like, you know, and so I was relieved when I didn't know him. Mm. Um, but then as he continued on through the hearings, cause we went to every one of them and he got very thin, you could really he didn't look like pudgy grandpa anymore. He looked like a real mean son of a bitch. Like, mm. like you could see the anger in him. But I don't think I ever had a true reaction other than looking at him and trying again to put the pieces together that this man was in my house yeah. and raped me, but also her and her and her and her and all these people that are now my friends. Yeah. It's staggering to think when I looked at, you know, this group of 14 people that were together that he was in every one of our homes. Yeah. Like Gosh. it's, it's a, uh, I'm just in awe about through all of this. It's so hard for me to, to process all of this. Like it's just such a massive incident yeah. that just, yeah. Did you guys ever want to ask him any questions? Did you ever feel the need to ask him questions or? Well, I wrote him two letters. Do you think you read them? Oh, I'm sure he did, but he didn't answer. But the first one was, you know, it's just, I had the power. He, yeah, yeah. I get to yeah, do that's this. That's how it should be. I know who you are. And yeah, it was pretty, a lot of four letter words in there. And then I wrote another one at one point, uh, that was more, you know, you're pathetic. 
I don't know. It's, and people go, why would you do that? And I was like, I don't know. It just made me feel like I had the power. Yeah. If it makes you feel better and that's something you need to needed to do, I say, go for it. Yeah. Do, do you have any plans on trying to reach out to him at this point or? No, nah. I, I just want him to live a very long life in prison. Yeah. Like he doesn't get to die and get out of this early. Yeah. So, wow. No, I think, I think me writing, it was just part of my healing process. And I think a lot of, if, if I wasn't doing the work I'm doing now, I would say as many of the other victims are that they're done, they're back at work, they're living their life. For me, I just needed something more purposeful than to work. So I, I, I quit my job and decided to devote the rest of my time to other people like me, because there's a lot of other people yeah. like me. Good awesome. for you. You're definitely making a big difference. So stay tuned for some upcoming um, podcasts to this series on on how he was uh, caught and maybe get some investigators on here who investigated these cases. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me. Steve, you're off camera, but thank you for being here to support her. That is awesome and noble of you. Appreciate that. Wow, that was uh, that was impactful. That was uh, probably one of the most impactful episodes I think I think that we've done. It's um, it's a hell of a story. So thank you for letting me tell it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you're able to uh, bounce back from that and be be successful at the end of the day. So that wraps it up, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Pedretti.